We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big science, or in this week's case, engineering, from the small island of Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, so head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about the good things they're doing. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, who is our engineering expert. And I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutruwita. I also acknowledge the traditional owners wherever you are listening, and on behalf of everyone, I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present. So today, I'm really excited about this topic. I didn't know I could be so excited about transportation engineering with a traffic expert, uh, Matthew Brooks from Jacobs. So Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about Matthew? Uh, So Matthew's a senior associate transport engineer with Jacobs and has over 16 years of professional experience in civil and traffic engineering. Um, So Matthew's also been the Tasmanian Professional of the Year in 2019 and the Young Engineer of the Year in 2016. So that's a Engineers Australia Award. So welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Um, Matthew, can you give us a quick outline of the work you do as a transportation engineer and what attracted you to this field? So as a transportation engineer, my main um, uh, area that I look at is um, network simulation. So I used uh, traffic uh, simulation software to try and uh, predict the way traffic will move through a road network and that comes in uh, handy when you're trying to change the road network. So things like adding in a new uh, traffic lane, changing an intersection from a roundabout to traffic signals or doing something uh, quite bold like a bypass or a tunnel or something like that. Um, Traffic simulation helps us understand how the traffic will redistribute um, and any sort of behaviour issues that come from that. Um, in terms of uh, what draw me to it, um, I like the political nature of it and the fact that it is so um, I- integral to our daily lives. We all travel for work. Well, we used to travel for work, a bit different now. But, um, yeah, so it just it just strikes my imagination. There's always a problem to be solved and uh, I just find um, a lot of enjoyment about that problem-solving element with traffic engineering. I have a question, Matthew, about traffic. So... Is traffic, when you consider it in your modelling, are you specifically thinking about how a car moves through space or are you thinking about how cyclists, pedestrians and how all of those factors interact together within your model? Well, that's a very good question. Um, The answer is both. Um, Primarily, uh, you look at the way individual vehicles move and interact with each other through space and time. You can actually uh, model the interaction of uh, cyclists and pedestrians as well. Um, There is specific... Um, software as well that can uh, model pedestrian movements and they do that around uh, stadiums, uh, train stations, that sort of stuff and they see how the density um, changes as you put in more people or you have some sort of evacuation event. They do that um, with the pedestrian modelling. Um, in terms of cycling and pedestrianisation, um, it is quite uh, less common but it just depends on what um, problem uh, you want to solve, what question you're trying to answer um, sometimes you don't necessarily have to consider them if you're doing sort of highway work, but particularly in uh, city centres or residential areas, yeah, you, it is a big question 
that needs to be answered. How do the, how do you get from A to B? What mode? What are you letting people use? And what mode of transport will they use? That's that is a very big question. Thanks. That's really interesting. So what tools and processes do you use as a transportation engineer and how does this relate to the more traditional fields of engineering that our listeners may be familiar with? Well, the first thing is data collection. It's a big, big thing in, in traffic engineering. So um, you, you might have seen in the newspapers quite a lot, um, they talk about the fact that uh, the road authority is doing a survey and um, what we do is we, we use um, cameras and it's all... It's all um, privacy based so that you can't actually figure out who anyone is but you you have to actually film or count cars and work out the number of vehicles um, the distribution through the network um, whether they're a car truck cyclists all those sorts of things so you use um, all sorts of different survey techniques um, you work out how fast people are traveling between point a and point b and then you use a lot of statistical analyses to try and understand how they're moving then from there, um, you use a lot of uh, mathematical processes. I mean, the software we use is full of uh, research-based formulas on uh, driver behaviour and um, queuing theory and, and all those sorts of things that you use to manipulate and sort of work out and compare each of the projects. That's really interesting. For someone like me who's a medical scientist, I often think about surveys as when we ask people questions, not in that type of a way. So are you, um, what comes to mind is I think of when I see sometimes the people in their fluoro with the fluoro pole, and I'm always wondering what they're beaming that at. I'm like, are they doing some sort of civil engineering thing, looking at the road or something, or are they looking at the vehicles? But also, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with when you're driving along and there's a camera that you're like, oh, it's a speed camera, but then it's not a speed camera. Yeah. Um, so are those the types of instruments you're using? Uh, Pretty much. So the, the the cameras that you see, most of them would be traffic ca- cameras, permanent traffic cameras, or um, they're used to assist with uh, uh, the operation of traffic signals through the network, trying to minimise the queuing or highlight where the system isn't working appropriately. But yes, we typically use uh, we can use a lot of new techniques now. Um, you can you might have seen along some of the highways um, some poles with solar panels on top they're actually uh, bluetooth detectors and they they sort of detect a um, a bluetooth signal and they can sort of pinpoint where that bluetooth signal is coming and going and how fast it's going once again it's all privacy laws so you can't actually pick up who exactly that is Um, but yeah there's those um, wi-fi signals one technique i use for determining speeds on highways and whether or not you know um, congestion is impacting on a highway is we do use um uh, sampling of, of Google travel time data so, and TomTom data and all those sorts of things. So you can sort of get historical profiles of how uh, traffic speeds have changed, congestion impacts have changed. But, um, but the most traditional way is to use uh, a stationary camera perched above, say, an intersection or a car driving uh, in within the traffic stream with a, with a GPS signal to measure, measure travel times. But one thing I've always been interested in when you think about that, so talking about the people on the corner of the road or over an intersection, like that's quite a static form mm-hmm. of data collection. Yes. And one of the things that I find most interesting about traffic is the way people make decisions about how they're going to change through multiple lanes, mm-hmm. um, particularly at large intersections or roads where there's you know four or five lanes and you've got to be in the right one to mm-hmm. turn off. Do you, do you capture dynamic data or like data about that decision making or like across a, an intersection or a piece of road where there are lots of decisions? You, you can, and um, quite a f- number of surveys 
I've done recently have used drone technology. Fly a drone up, look at the sort of the the road uh, segment from from above, and then what you can do is you can use uh, sort of like a machine learning um, artificial intelligence assessment, which um, I typically get someone else to do. Then it traces every vehicle through the network um, and that field of vision, and you can actually uh, determine the change in speed profile, the number of lane changes, how close. They're driving, so headways between the vehicles and all that sort of stuff. So it's getting a quite a, a powerful um, a range of survey techniques and, a, and it's a wider application uh, to engineering. So it really helps with how to smooth out highway mergers, try and stop weave merging. So, you know, if your lanes aren't designed properly and people are changing lanes a lot, that actually causes congestion lane changing. So you actually want to minimise that. So you want to make everything as easy to read and as free-flowing as possible so that your network runs as smoothly as possible. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay tuned and in just a moment we'll be talking more to our expert guest, Matthew Brooks, about transportation engineering. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about transportation engineering. My name is Sarah Lydon, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Matthew Brooks from Jacobs. So, Matthew, can you tell us about an interesting traffic or transportation project that you've been involved in? I've been involved in quite a, quite a number of um, sort of high-profile um, projects that have been in the newspaper, um, from the Newcastle Light Rail project uh, to the most recent one, which was the w- the Western Bypass Tunnel paper, so that that was quite an interesting one because it did come use a lot of different transport um, and um, general professionals to come together to try and determine uh, the feasibility of of a sort of a massive piece of infrastructure. So it uses tra- transportation engineering uh, in conjunction with economics and tunnel design. Yes, for our listeners who aren't from Hobart, mm. could you explain to us a bit more about the Western Bypass project? To try and alleviate congestion, one of the solutions proposed was to try and uh, remove traffic from the CBD that didn't need to be there. So people who were trying to travel through rather than destined to be in the CBD. So most traffic in Hobart is actually going to the city. There are people who want to work in the city. We're in the city right now. We travelled into the city. But there is a proportion, uh, albeit small, that actually want to use want to travel from say Kingston to the eastern shore or Kingston to the northern suburbs so the 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 idea was to try and remove this proportion of traffic which is around 10 percent remove that amount of traffic from the the Hobart CBD and try and see if that would alleviate the congestion so the idea was because Hobart is quite a mature sort of site there's not a lot of room to build new roads the idea was to go underneath or over the top with a flyover uh, the tunnel was the initial choice because um, of issues with flyovers in terms of they create shady spots. They um, they are visually not very nice to look at. So you want your your, your CBD to be pretty. Um, so the initial um, thought process was to to build a tunnel and divide uh, divert cars that wanted to travel between, say, the Southern Outland and the Brooker Highway around the CBD rather than through it. Um, could you tell us how principles of engineering were integrated into the work involved in this project? Yeah. So the main uh, principles, uh, once first of all, was around uh, the geometric aspects. Um, in my um, in my area in transport, it was to do with um, the the four principles of the movement of traffic, the distribution, uh, which is where people start and finish, 
uh, the mode choice, whether the car or bus, uh, and the assignment, whether they choose to travel on a bypass or whether they'll continue their normal path through the CBD. And the last one is the traffic generation. So the traffic generation is how many would do that. So um, in terms of the traffic modelling, so we use traffic modelling to, to try and determine the utilisation of uh, the bypass, and that enabled to, uh, us to sort of figure out the volume and, and with that, we were able to pass that on to an economic assessment to test that out. In terms of the location of a bypass, we have to sort of w- look at sort of geometric rest- constraints. Obviously, with a tunnel, you've got to dig down. You can only dig so steeply because otherwise a truck can't drive up and down. Also, in a tunnel, the curves can only be so sharp. Um, otherwise, you can't get the speed. So if you've got a 100 km an hour uh, speed limit through a tunnel, you have to have a very, very um, large radius turn Whereas if you have uh, a, f- a slower speed, you can have a shorter radius and a sharper turn. Um, but with a, something like a tunnel, you really want to get people moving as fast as possible to make it more attractive to people to use. So you obviously you try and bump up the speed, but that comes with limitations in terms of how you align the tunnel itself. So those were the sort of the main sort of elements. And plus, you've got to build it. So one of the other main constraints was, well, how do you build a tunnel? You've got to be able to... Uh, like launch your tunnel boring machine and that can take like up to a city block to sort of get that machine in and digging and under the ground. That's pretty amazing but one question that comes to mind instantly for me is if there's only 10% of the traffic going from the southern outlet to either the eastern shore so this tunnel is going to appeal to 10% of your traffic to make it non-Hobart specific why not pick off one of the bigger problems that's a larger proportion of people so then if you took 10% away from the other proportion of people you maybe don't need a solve all solution but you're still diverting some of the congestion so like by a park and ride or something so what, what would be the rationale to target a smaller proportion of people with something specifically for them so part of the study was to do those sorts of assessments. So um, that's why um, traffic engineers are brought in because a lot of these uh, traffic engineering projects, they're very political, they're very, uh, they've got a lot of public interest and so there's a lot of information out there which is a bit of uh, gut feel um, when you look at reading it in the newspapers and that sort of stuff. So it really is um, up to people like myself to try and get the real truths out of it. For our listeners, I was driving recently from Hobart to the Eastern Shore and then down towards the Tasman Peninsula. So after Hobart Airport, you cross two man-made bridges over like waterways to connect suburbs. I've always found those really interesting. So there's one that's maybe like, let's say a kilometre and there's another one slightly longer. And the traffic leading up to the airport is congested quite often. But then also over those two um, waterways, it's quite congested. And I was wondering knowing I was going to be interviewing you Matthew it's like well what would you do about this because the bridge is very narrow there's very little room for expansion do you try and like play around with smoothing out the um, speed limits or like what other solutions do you have when just expanding or changing the dynamic isn't available well that's that's one one reason so so with with capacity there are certain drivers uh, the width of the lane the speed uh, the number of heavy vehicles, they all impact on, on capacity. So, yeah, so with the causeways, yeah, there's, there's, it is a quite a constrained site. The things that you can do uh, without um, changing the infrastructure is lowering the speed or limiting the type of vehicles that can cross. So he- a large quantity of ha- heavy vehicles um, or a high speed with a narrow width 
can actually cause congestion. So that's what happens in most of these cases. Can you also change like the types of intersections at the ends of those types of roads? Because I noticed in this specific example that it's a roundabout and roundabouts obviously are supposed to help the flow of traffic from all of the future directions. But to me, I was like, well, this seems to be creating a bit of a barrier whereas if those people turning left or hooking around were further up, then we would all slowly merge slightly easier is that like another way that intersection points change like a roundabout's not just for safety it's actually quite strategic exactly right um so when we're looking at any um, transport system we look at first the links or the roads and then also at the nodes which are the intersections so trying to choose the most appropriate intersection for the location uh, the amount of room you have, and also the flow of traffic. So um, roundabouts are very good when you have sort of even flow, um, low flows. They, they work quite well because everyone sort of, um, there's enough gaps. But when you get a bit of a um, disproportionate flow, so one approach gets more cars than the other, uh, they start to break down, they start not to work as well. So in that case, you want to look at something either uh, signalisation, that's usually the last resort, um, the other one, and the bigger one, is is some sort of grade separation where you have roads going up and underneath each other, over the top and underneath each other, so that you tr try and uh, avoid any conflict, which is what you get when two roads come together at a sort of an intersection such as a roundabout. So quite often it is you can sort of improve the intersection, add an extra lane, uh, change it to, to, to another form of, of control. Awesome, that's really <laughs> interesting. Who knew that there was so much to do with roundabouts? So recently, another Hobart example, um, throughout the central city area, we noticed that the speed limit was decreased from 50 kilometres per hour to 40 kilometres per hour. Can you tell us a little bit about how that might impact in terms of safety for people in the environment and also in terms of traffic management? Yes, yeah, so that's a very interesting project. And I, I always um, advocate for, for appropriate speeds for, for road environments. And obviously a CBD has got a high pedestrianisation. So you really want to make sure that you're not... Uh, you, that you've got the most appropriate speed uh, to make sure that everyone is safe. So in a CBD environment, um, it's it's unlikely that you even travel at 50 kilometres an hour between the intersections. So if someone does get up to 50 kilometres an hour, they're likely to have to slow down rather quickly to get to a set of traffic signals and then that's the way at the traffic signals anyway. So you're not actually, over the course of a day, you're not actually going to be gaining or losing any sort of time by changing it 40 kilometres an hour. But what you are doing is you are improving safety. When you're going slower, you have less impact. And you also have more time to uh, react. So, but it's a, a, quite a significant reduction in fatalities with every 10 kilometre an hour uh, speed reduction. So it, it is a safety measure. Obviously, if you go down to zero um, kilometres an hour, no one, no one gets injured. But that's obviously not practical. So there is a limit to how how low you would go. But in in a in a sort of environment such as the CBD, thirty or forty kilometres an hour, it won't have an impact on people's um, overall travel time. They might get a bit frustrated travelling between the intersections, but because of the the traffic lights and the amount of time they wait at traffic lights, it's overall their journey is going to be quite equivalent. Well, you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. We're, my name is Neve Chapman. I've been joined with my expert co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, and our expert guest, Matthew Brooks. Stay with us in just a moment. We'll be talking more about traffic and all things future-facing.
You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we are talking about transportation engineering. My name is Sarah Lydon and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Matthew Brooks from Jacobs. So Matthew, you told us a little bit about at the start about some of the future technologies that are being used in the, the survey space for transportation engineering. But could you tell us more broadly about any future directions and emerging technologies within the transportation engineering sector? Most people would have heard about driverless cars. That's that's the, that's the big big one, and it's quite quite an interesting, quite an interesting um, area of tra- transport engineering and and trying to work out how uh, these vehicles will interact and and the transition to these vehicles because you're not all of a sudden going to get every car on the road as a driverless vehicle. So at some point there's going to be some sort of transition period where we're slowly getting more driverless sort of technology um, as the the driver the the, the steered vehicles are, are removed from from the network so there's there's quite a bit of uh, talk about how that will happen and it's, it's it is actually quite a difficult thing to predict because there's a lot of in, um, IP um, intellectual property involved with how these cars actually do what they do so in ter- trying to research it is actually quite difficult but I've, there are software packages most traffic modeling software packages now have an element in it which allows them to uh, simulate driverless vehicles, um, whether or not they're just an individual vehicle doing its thing and reacting faster, or it's a it's a um, a cooperative sort of fleet of vehicles who are talking to each other so they can drive faster. And if the front one breaks, they all know that the front one that that that's happening, so they can all react in a millisecond to what what's going on. But um, yeah, it, uh, you also hear a lot of uh, sort of. Uh, fairy tales about you know you'll be able to step out in front of a vehicle and it'll stop dead you know when you when you extend extend that to you know all of science there's a thing called mass um and and you know a a one-ton car trying to stop on a dime it just doesn't happen and particularly if there's someone in that car they're not going to like that so and so there are some still going to be some things about how they they operate that that we'll have to manage particularly around um one of the one of the main things that I thought was interesting was we'll still need traffic signals, because you need to be allow you need to allow your pedestrians to cross the road. So you're still going to have people crossing the road. So unless you want to have everyone crossing in a skyway, uh, we're still going to have to have in intersections. So it's not going to really improve in that area. Um, and as I said, look, there's still going to be some safety implications. There's, there's um, in terms of because they've got mass, they've still got to still got to stop. Um, there's you know and and. They have to have some sort of logic in them to, to try and avoid crashes and that sort of thing. And we've seen a few examples in the media, I suppose, of, of cars not doing what they're supposed to do. Like I saw the one in Singapore where the car crashed right into a, an object on the highway. So that, that's one, one, one quite interesting thing. And there's also uh, an area of transport engineering uh, which overlaps with the electrical engineering type fields, intelligent transport systems, where... Uh, we look at um, systems on the road which react to the prevailing conditions, such as uh, we've got a f- we've got a good example, uh, two good examples in Tasmania. Um, on approach to the Tasman Bridge, you have the variable speed signs which change uh, the speed uh, depending on the level of congestion, and also our traffic signals along David Macquarie Street are actually adaptive as well, which pe- some people will be shocked at because t- people tend to always complain about it, but they actually are adaptive to the conditions and actually do quite a good job of of, of um, smoothing out the flows and all that sort of stuff. They're doing quite a good job of um, managing the traffic and the flows and um, competing demands for, for, for space. Um, how much, Matthew, do you think that like the provision of large 
data is going to change how your field operates. Like you, you talked earlier at the start of the show about how much that's changed just in a short period of time. But I was surprised to hear that you still do any surveys. Why don't you just use satellite data or real-time data? Because arguably, wouldn't you always want to be informing your decisions with real-time data? Do you think that that time is coming or is uh, like here already? Well, it's certainly coming. Um, it's, it's sort of getting there. Um, like I talked about earlier about using uh, um, Google API or TomTom data and those sorts of data sets to get sort of travel time. I do a lot of surveys because I need specific sort of data which can be hard to get out of big data. So there are some certain elements to big data. So big data being big databases of, of all things traffic. So I do use it, um, but when I have a specific problem, sometimes it requires a specific set of data. So are you using things like machine learning or artificial intelligence within uh, traffic management or is that likely to come because it's the burden of big data is that it's great on a population level, not super great on an individual level, but lots of people like to propose that maybe machine learning will help us uh, if we see lots of individual cases multiplied over a population then they're no longer really that individual decision-making principles can be applied by using machine learning and things like that. Do you think that that's something that might is already being used or will be used in the future? Well, certainly getting um, certainly getting promoted. I know a, a few companies like um, that, that sort of propose that sort of thing for construction site uh, traffic management, so making you know, sort of uh, real-time um, uh, data collection in terms of travel times, congestion levels, so that you can sort of determine whether or not uh, you need to make a change to help flow of traffic. Um, I saw recently uh, one company, um, they were using uh, machine learning to predict or identify people driving the wrong way down a road so they could could, um, sort of identify uh, and put in a traffic management um, measure to try and prevent, obviously, the, the risks involved in that. Um, I think it's it's definitely it's definitely coming and becoming more prevalent. Um, lots of technologies use s- some level of detection um, to try and um, like enact traffic management. And I think there's a concept called managed motorways, which which uses those sorts of things, and it's getting more pre- prevalent um, to try and use um, detection to predict whether or not someone's a truck, for instance, is too tall to be using some off ramps. So it's trying to throw out a warning that you're going to get stuck under a bridge or something like that or or detect that, you know, the flow is breaking down so, that, you know, you need to do something like close a lane or open a lane or or, or change um, the flow to one way or two way or those sorts of things. So it, it's definitely coming um, and and it's um, becoming more more prevalent. Um, I think there's there's only a handful of projects that I've seen um, recently, but it's, it's, it's very powerful and I think um, it, it, it's working. Awesome. Thanks so much, Matthew. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show that certainly is probably relevant to most of our listeners. And if you did, please, you know where to get in touch with us on all of your major social media channels. For now, thank you and goodbye from me. My name is Neve Chapman, my co-host, Sarah Lydon, and our expert guest, Matthew Brooks. Until next time. Thanks, folks. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. 
GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.